Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Tamiya's are currently the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commission of New Zealand and Tumu Whakarei at Ember Innovations. Starting her career as an air hostess with Ansett and Qantas, Tamiya has become one of the leading minds in the mental health sector. With over 17 years experience in mental health and addiction services, e-health, suicide prevention, leadership service and program design and implementation, Tamiya is uniquely qualified to share her thoughts on the landscape of mental health services now and the value people with lived experience bring to the table. Tamiya is, is a firm believer that if you have a great idea that the world should know about it and that experiences enable, not disable, people to innovate. It was a great pleasure to sit down with, for this discussion with Tammy, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Tammy Allen. Kia ora, Tammy. Thanks so much for coming. Kia ora, Sam. Thanks for coming and sharing some time with me and our listeners. Appreciate that. Do you want to give some context to our listeners? Let's go back to your flight attendant day. You were international flight attendant with Qantas. Tell our listeners, set the context, how important that was, how much you loved doing that. Oh, it was a childhood dream, actually. You know, I, I saw, I was a part of the ANSET Starship crew in the 80s. ANSET, yeah. Yeah, yeah, back then. And I just thought that flight attendant was like this most glamorous, amazing job and I always wanted to do it. You know, if I couldn't be a space pilot, then maybe that was second yeah. best. Because um, you love to travel. Yeah, love to travel and I was quite blessed in that. My my family was able to travel and I remember a, a big overseas trip when I was seven years old so that kind of cemented the love of travel and hospitality and those sorts of things. So, you know, straight after school I went into hospitality. I was Australia's first female butler, which was wow. kind of cool at the age of 19. I looked after some pretty amazing people, everyone from like Madonna and Michael Jackson to, you know, Bono and U2 and the Rolling Stones, really cool people. And as, at a 19, as a 19-year-old, be placed in that professional environment where you kind of had to be the best of the best in looking after these celebrities was, was a pretty cool way in. And then, then I started working for ANSET and I was, you know, fly, flying domestically around the Olympics time and then when ANSET collapsed, I moved over to Qantas and went international and Qantas were great because they trained me as an in-flight first-class sommelier, so I was able to pick and taste wines from all over the world. Oh. I was an awesome job. just wasn't very conducive to young family. Yeah, staying at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, whereabouts were you based during all this? Were you uh, based in Australia? In Sydney. Okay. In Sydney for, for ANSET. Yes. And then in Qantas I was based in Auckland. Okay. Yeah. So we start to kind of cross countries a little bit for lots of different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So – 
So tell me, back when you were the first female butler, what stood out for you as an experience there? And that because it's a, uh, I mean, uh, it's something that not many people would ever experience or know no, about, right? No, and you know, being the first female, there wasn't a, a you know a female uniform. I had to wear the, the bloke's uniform, which oh is you know goodness. tucks and tails. Yeah, which, you know, kind of cool in the in the nineties to do that. Was and that in uh, hotels or in, yeah, in hotels? Yeah. yeah, it was for the Hyatt chain. So. Okay, so you just go whichever hotel these yeah, people were staying yeah. at. You would then so they'd come over on tour or something like that, right. and then they'd have one person they could deal with for that that whole time. For the whole the, tour for the, for the to- yeah, time that they were staying in Australia. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So, so then uh, lots of great stories about celebrities, but maybe not now. It's not yeah, time yeah, yeah, yeah. Maintain yes. privacy and that's it. I get all that um, even years later. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah. And so, so you went from there to doing some travel. So you're doing the hostessing and and in with Qantas eventually. Tell me about that experience, and then what made you move on from Qantas? I probably would still be there today if I didn't break my leg. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I have read that you've said that breaking your leg, in fact, someone from the mental health sector said, Tammy, breaking her leg was the best thing that ever happened <laughs> to, <laughs> for the, to her, yeah. for, for us. But anyway, tell me about that experience. So, yeah, we, we'd, we'd planned to use our big, you know, staff travel discount to take my, my husband and, and son at that point, my daughter hadn't been born, to do a big tour of the states and do Vegas and all those cool kind of cool things and we were I was sitting on the on the side of our cousin's deck we had a great swim in the ocean and we come back and we'd had a glass of champagne sitting on the edge of the deck dangling my legs over and I thought ah oh, I used to be a rock climber you know I, I could I could totally just lower myself off the side of this deck and, and then pull myself back up but of course wasn't a rock climber anymore and I no longer had the upper body strength. Oh, no. And so I dropped like a stone onto the concrete below and broke my leg in two places. Christ. And then my partner, being the beautiful, helpful guy that he is, ran over and went, oh, my God, your foot's like turned in the total opposite direction. Let me straighten that for you and cause break number three. <laughs> oh, my God. So long story short. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, uh, you know, when you're already at pain ten, level 10, there's not much further you can go. Oh. But long story short, you, know, you can't fly with a broken leg. So Qantas grounded me, wanted to put me on, on ground duties. And I, it's just, it's not fun. It's not cool. Yeah. So it was around about the time I'd, in that, in that same space of time, I'd actually been awarded an Excel award, which is like an employee of the year, but there's several employees of the year for Qantas because I'd saved a child's life on a flight. Okay. And so That's a big deal. It was a big deal, yeah. And it's not one of those things you plan. Like you don't plan to win an award like that. It's just no. you just react. It's incredible. Yeah, in the in the time and, and luckily she survived. But I was being flown to Sydney to collect because I was in Auckland at this stage yeah. to collect my award and I was in a wheelchair with my huge broken leg and wheeling through that. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to be grounded, I don't know whether this is something I want to keep doing. I don't want to be off for six months or a year on ground duties, I'll look for something else. And at that point in time, I'd had lots of conversations over the years with my fellow crew members about the the the, the quietness you had to hide anything that was going on from your mental health. Now, I'd already gone through an enormous mental health journey and totally lied through my teeth when I got into the airlines about those experiences because I knew I'd be discriminated against. I knew I wouldn't get the job. I wouldn't be able to keep the job if I was able to talk about that. And then the more you talked about staff, to staff, about those sort of similar experiences when you're on a flight, you realise that actually a lot of them had that. And 
you know, the airlines, not just Qantas, but most airlines are really pride themselves on being experts in safety. And yet for me, that was a really big blind spot yeah. about how we're looking after the well-being of our staff. And I've since spoken to my pilot friends who have said, you know, this, this is – this is a danger waiting to happen, and we've seen it in the past. You know, we've we've had pilots fly into mountains because they not not because they were crazy, but because they weren't able to get support that they needed from their companies. Right. So, in my acceptance speech for my award, I decided to go to town and talk about this this you know blind spot that the airlines had about looking after the well being and mental health and how that hiding it wasn't going to solve the problem. We actually had to find a way of of encouraging our staff to talk about it in a way that they could be supported. And then, of course, drop the mic moment, I went and I quit because <laughs> I thought I probably can't keep my job after this speech. So you used that platform to really set the tone then and be able to explain the yeah. the thing that they were missing from that and the openness and really creating that really supportive psychological safety in a space to be able to share that with their employer. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I acknowledge that it's there are several risk industries of which you can discriminate against people for mental health, of which flying is one, dr- drilling's another, you know, there's a few of that. And and to their credit, I believe that quite a lot have work, have work has gone in since I left Qantas and, yeah. and the airlines into really, really genuinely looking into that space. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Mm. Do you, do you think there's because I mean, let's just talk about the fact that you weren't you, you weren't you didn't feel safe, you didn't feel the ability for you to share your mental health background in a job application. How do you think we're going with that? Not just the airlines, but broad brush at the moment. Do you think we're doing a good enough job now, employers, and really trying to create that open space and conversation around? It's okay. Look, I. I- I think it depends on the employer. Okay. It depends on what they constitute as risk. I've I've been tasked to go and speak to many employers that have been hauled over the coals by employment opportunities when things go wrong. And amazing things have come out of that. And some employers now that I've worked with, including even like the Ministry of Health in New Zealand, yeah. have and now put on their employment forms when you're applying that we we value the lived experience of using mental health services, thriving through mental distress, we find that as something that's valuable to bring to the workplace. And a lot of the conversations I have with employers is really just helping them understand that people with these experiences are actually far more resilient in the workforce. They're far Mm. less likely to have productivity or issues. It's kind of the opposite of what some people might think. What about, I mean, if people, like if it won't affect the the role or their their ability to be able to do their job, I mean, do you still think that it's important to be able to have the conversation with your staff, whether it's during a new hire or existing people to say, you know, if you do have any mental health issues and do you think the onus is then on the employee, whether or not they feel comfortable to share that in that space? Yeah, I I think that disclosure is really a difficult thing to encourage people to do if the culture isn't already in the workplace. Yeah. So it has to start from the recruitment process. You have to be really open and honest about the fact that actually we value these experiences. We're not going to discriminate against you. Yes. If you have them, the reason we're asking you is we want to be able to say what is it, what is the kind of support we can wrap around you for you to be able to do your best and be the most productive yeah. Not for you to be to lose an advantage, if to say to try and get the job, yeah. but really to try and create, yeah, like you just said, the support mechanisms That's around. Right. 
And some some workplaces are even put in like buddy system or peer support systems in the workplace, which has been really successful. Having someone, a colleague that you can trust that you know have been through similar experiences to go and talk to in those, which is kind of better than yeah. AP or employee assistance programs. But I didn't ask a question, you answer your question, Sam, like where did I go next after Qantas? You know, after that drop the mic moment, I went and looked and I opened the paper at the time and there was a job description in there that said, if you have had personal experiences of using mental health services, here's a job for you. So I rang them up, came in, and the rest is history. Do you feel like that seeing that in the application made you more just, – just resonated with you to think, okay, I no longer have to put on a mask to go to work. I can just be myself and actually someone cares and sees me as who I am rather than who I – had to pretend to be? Uh, it was it was such an epiphany and, and honestly, that single moment in time was probably the, the the best pill I could have ever taken for mental health to actually see that my distress and recovery from distress was a qualification for the job. And my my boss at the time, that first boss I had in mental health, that was twenty years ago. He said to me something absolutely profound that that I kind of w- would love to have tattooed, really. And he said, "Tammy, your your experiences have enabled you, not disabled you." And that is something that I pass on to everyone that I work with. It's like, don't don't make these things disabling. Mm-hmm. Use them. Use them for good. Yeah, and that takes a while in some respects to get that culture to change, doesn't it? Because certainly in Australia, it feels like we still have a way to go with that. But I mean, we are seeing it start to sort of get recognised and that power of lived experience and that ability to create a culture of psychological safety and being open, not just to people's opinions, but also for them to feel comfortable sharing about their backgrounds, not to the detriment, but in actual fact to try and turn it around, spin it around and say, well, what do we need to do to to better support you to, to do your job. Yeah. And look, some of the most wonderful conversations I've had with people, we still have this horrible thing that we do in mental health where people are told time and time again, oh, this is, you know, you have an illness. This is something you have to manage for the rest of your life. You probably won't be able to do these things. You have to be on this medication, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things have kind of this hopelessness and inevitability about them. But neither of those things are true and I I see my job as really just planting the seed and being able to say to people, hey, if if that's working for you now, that's cool, K to pie, but actually what if all was different? What if in five years things did look different from they do now? You know, what's the first step you could take if you wanted it to look different? What, What if you weren't on medication for the rest of your life, what else would you need to replace that with? Or what if you were on slightly less or it worked better for you? What, what are some of the other pieces of that jigsaw puzzle that might work? And not giving them advice but just planting that seed that actually that maybe, maybe it could be different. And so when you, got, when you took that first role in, in mental health, mm-hmm. what was the role and what were you doing and how did you find it? <laughs> wow. And my first role was as a consumer advisor. So basically I was given a portfolio of mental health services that I was then to go into the management teams of those services and speak on behalf of the patients of those services. And there was quite a lot of services I looked after, mostly ones that I'd used myself in the past, but some that weren't. So I also looked at older people, 
both inpatient and, and community services, young persons, inpatient, community, adult, eating disorders service, oh, yeah, quite a, lot, quite a lot of different services. And this is in New Zealand? Yeah, in New Zealand by yeah. the stage, yeah. And my job was uh, to, well, I, you know, there was no real job description other than to advise the service. So my way of doing that is because I'd come from a world of hospitality and I had a background in, in acting and the arts and things like that, I and cooking and chefing, I brought those things and I'd use those as ways to engage with patients because if you just walk into an inpatient unit, no one really wants to talk to you. They don't know you from a bar of soap. Yeah. But with the young kids, I did cooking classes, so I taught them how to make bread and we would just talk as we made bread. And with mums with young babies, oh, we would we would paint and we would do artwork. And with some of the early psychosis people, we would create comedy scripts from their experiences because I could do that because you can laugh at yourself. Mm. And so these were the ways I kind of understood how people were experiencing the system and they were able to tell me their stories. And in those stories I could take to management and go, hey, these are the things we could change that would make a big difference to people. Yeah, so you saw that as an opportunity to go and create change then. Mm-hmm. And and then what happened? Where, where did you go on the journey? Well, I think – I think my workplace really saw the potential in me having brought my experiences from outside the mental health system. And so they kind of, I I managed to, they managed to create roles for me as time went on. So I then moved into our, what was then called the Like Minds Like Mind campaign. It was an international award winning anti discrimination campaign in New Zealand. And I, I, I did some pretty cool things like a global mental health arts festival. So we did a call out for 10-minute scripts and those scripts could be, you know, visual art, dance, comedy, drama and those came in from all over the world and then we got a panel of experienced people to say here is the 10 scripts that we're going to put on and we, we put those on in a, one of the biggest stages in Auckland. All of our cast and crew had lift experience. We streamed it live across the world in Sydney and Melbourne and New York and wow. a few other places. They were also given the scripts and they put on their own versions of those, those plays and stand-up comedy things. And, we, and it was just it was, it was called The Big Rethink and it was just such a, a cool way of raising awareness and using that power of contact that these are some pretty talented and incredible people on stage. Oh, and by the way, they also have lived experience of distress and addiction. How incredible is that to Mm. be part of that? I mean, that would have taken some serious organising. Yeah, it took two years to organise that. Fair dinkum, two years. Yeah. So that was one of the the many, many projects we did in that space. Mm. Another one was called Cacophony of Creativity, where I interviewed 10 people that had the shared experience of hearing voices. And then from that, we put that into five-minute scripts. And then we brought those people in to cast themselves through actors, voice actors, so they could remain anonymous. And then we had a composer design a soundscape of what that world would sound like to them, not just the voices but, you know, the gardens of recovery, whatever it is that they that they used as, as part of their space. And then we created an installation that toured so that people could hear their stories, see the artwork, That's be immersed great. in their world. So if you, were talk, if you were listening to Georgina's story, who's a transgender IT specialist, you were sitting in a room full of computers surrounded by her clothes and cats 
if you were thinking about Wilbur, who was a pilot and recovered through going back to Fiji, you were sitting in his garden listening to the birds. If you were listening to Peter, who was a guy who discovered psychosis through drug addiction and then came out the other end and became a peer support worker, you were sitting in his boy racer car listening to his music as he was telling his story. So there was like these ten worlds that were amazing. Mary was in a church. So it was it was a really great way of people understanding what those experiences like and the whole person, not just the hearing voices, part of that person and it helped people really empathise and and humanise yeah. people that have these experiences. And we did VR films. Yeah, lots it's of incredible. stuff. incredible. Yeah. So you've done a lot of cool things. Yeah, yeah. It, where's that, where's that curiosity, not curiosity, where's, the, where's that spark for innovation in the mental health sector? Where's that come from with you? I, look, we can't keep – we'll never solve our mental health crisis per se yeah. by continuing doing what we've always done. So I'm always looking for new and novel ideas to, to think differently or help people change their behaviours, not, not just their attitudes. I think attitude changes is inherent. I think we'll all, we, we've seen people change their attitudes over lots of, you know, lots of different things over time. But, but what we really want is behaviour change and I really believe in the power of like edutaining people, so thinking they're coming and being entertained and, and enjoying that experience but actually walking away with a different mental model. And I... I I just believe that there's a solution in anything and we just might not have found it yet. So I, I'm not a Pollyanna. I know we have enormous problems in, in our system and in individuals as collective, but I, but I believe that we've got to keep trying to find our way around the outside. Yeah. How do you think we're going with all that at the moment? Do you think we're sort of at a, a junction? Do you think we're at a point at the moment where it's sort of – where it's escalating the change, the speed of technology and, and the excitement around what we can do with that in the mental health space. Do you think services, do you, I mean, as separated, segregated and siloed in some respects as they are, and I mean, do you feel like we've, we've still got a long way to go with this and a way to make it as best we can for, for clients and patients? Each of us have inside us a, an entrepreneur or an innovator and whether you call yourself an intrapreneur, you're working within the system and you're making small incremental changes that are going to make a difference, or whether you have stepped outside the system to create something that didn't exist for you. I think we need all of those things. Yes, technology is speeding up and we need to use that, but also that's not our whole solution. You know, we can't, we can't apply simple solutions to complex problems. We actually need complexity so we'll need all of those things together yeah i had i had another point there but yeah because services i mean the way that we're delivering things at the moment do you think we're a bit slow to take up do you think do you look at other countries perhaps and even say man the way these guys are doing things is pretty amazing we need to move towards that model or do you think do you think we need to sort of create our own mishmash of what we've already got and just try and improve on that and optimize what we're already doing I'm a firm believer of giving your best ideas away. So if you have a great idea, the world should know about it because mm. – and, and I, I hate this competitive environment where we keep ourselves in silos because someone might steal it and we've got a competitive funding model. I think if you have a great idea, you're not going to be able to do it in 500 places around the world. Give it away. Let other people trial it out and you'll be able to learn from um, their learnings and things. I think we've got an amazing opportunity right now that has happened through COVID – 
to yeah. work faster, more efficiently, to try things and fail. We're so afraid of, of failing in mental health. But if you look at any other system in the world that has been able to make disruptive change, it's because they've tried and failed over and over and over again. And in we have, and it, it's a horrible thing to say, but mental health is the only part of health and don't get me wrong, I don't even think it should be part of health, but it's the only specialist area in health where it's not okay to lose someone. You know, in oncology, we don't shoot our clinicians because they've lost someone to cancer. In fact, and we don't put them under a cancer act because they've chosen not to take chemo. And we're still being really positive about about recovery for people with cancer. And yet for some reason we have this kind of hopelessness mm. around distress and addiction that we feel we can't fix. We've got to sh- shroud and protect and wrap in cotton wool. But actually that provides more risk and more coercive practice. We've got to kind of loosen that up a bit. And there's a lot of things that need to happen in order to do that. But that's where we're going to find innovation by being able to take risks and being in partnership with clients, patients, lived experience, Indigenous communities and going, hey, what's going to work for you? Can we just do it? Can we just try it and see if it works? And let's let's hold that that responsibility, that that risk, that safety part of it together. What is it that's going to keep us safe in this rather than, oh, gosh, what's the most risky? What is going to keep us all safe? Mm. And and the and the power of bringing those voices together to form that solution, are we seeing that more now to become a structure moving forward on how to solve these sort of service issues moving forward to create better outcomes for patients? Do you think that we are now closer than ever to doing this? I mean, it certainly feels like we're getting more lived experience voices at the table with a lot of different advisory boards and organisations and informing policy and, and academia. We seem to be getting that lived experience in there a little bit more. Tell us about that as someone that's been such an important part of it since you first started your journey. Yeah, well, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit tired of people talking about the fact we need to consult and involve people with lived experience. We actually need lived experience to lead this work and what we keep forgetting is that whilst they may not have a qualification in mental health and studied for seven years a lot of us have studied 40 years of what lived experience looks like for us and what recovery can be and so and we bring lived experience brings so many other qualifications and experiences and degrees and things from other areas of, of business and science and social places that can inform this work so I mean that's that's one thing and I think the other thing I've really discovered in working now independently with entrepreneurs and innovators that work outside the system is the system doesn't know they exist. There's hundreds and thousands of people that have decided, oh, I'm not even going to bother with the system anymore. I'm going to create something. I'm not even going to bother trying to apply for government funding. I'm just going to do this thing. And some of those solutions are incredible. We don't even know they exist. We've got a real, I mean, when I ask people what's the most innovative thing that you've seen in mental health over the last year, they all will tell me this amazing thing, but they're all things that they've worked on. They don't. They can't pinpoint something out there in the world that is disruptive and innovative. They can't find the Uber and the Airbnb of yeah. mental health 
outside the worlds they live in. So I, I just encourage people to open their blinkers a little. And our job at Enber Innovations is to actually bring all those entrepreneurs, introduce them to our mental health system, not not encompass them and wrap them around and tell them all good, you know, good boys and girls, you're doing a great job, but actually find a way of plugging them into systems so that we can create the access and the options and the choice we need for people to discover their own recovery. So Ember Innovations encourages entrepreneurs from outside the sector to come in and bring some skill sets, bring some experience in other industries that have had disruption into the mental health space to say, how would we create this if we could do this all over again? Is that what the sort of thing you do? Yeah, well, we do quite a few things, but we've basically got kind of four PO or four pillars that yep. we work through to be able to to bring those two worlds together. One is is we connect. So we've we're connecting an ecosphere of people who want to fund mental health. So that's impact investors, philanthropists, individual investors, government funding. We're also bringing in innovators and connecting them to each other because often they work in silos too. Like if you're working on an app or you're working on a con- a community or an Indigenous solution to something, you're working in schools, mm. you're not connecting to other people who are doing similar things and learning from them. And when you do, they're so open to sharing their ideas and supporting and collaborating and mentoring each other. Then And then we give them whatever other support that they might need. And a lot of them say you know, we, we, we could totally solve this problem for them, but they don't trust us because we're not mental, we're not in mental health. So we can go, we can, we can do that. We will help you evaluate. We will help you accreditate if that's what you need. Accredit what you're doing is safe and effective. And then we can say to people who might find you, yeah, we, we believe in this. We are mental health experts. We think that this solution, this innovation is something you should fund. And then from the learnings we have of that, we, we advocate for changes in the system itself so that we can bring those two worlds together. And then I think the most important process that we do, which takes much longer, is what's called a challenge process. So as we learn from all of these worlds, we go, aha, here's an enormous gap that no one is filling, no one is being able to come up with a solution and then we bring all the, right, all the players to the table. So that's cross-sector, cross-discipline, Cross demographic, cross people, and we bring them into the right into the room, and we do an enormous long term co design process of what is the problem, how are we going to solve it together, and then hopefully come up with a pilot, and then go back to our investors and government networks and go, who's going to fund this? So, so you connect a lot of people in the ecosphere for them to be able to do it themselves. You support people in case they need that mental health input. But you then also do some advocacy. But then if no one else does it, you'll then say, here's a gap. No one's doing it. Let's bring these people in and start taking control of it ourselves. 100%. Yeah, wow. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, big task for like six people. <laughs> wow, wow. Six, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. But, but you have to think that there has to be opportunity to do this. There's so much opportunity. And we're really blessed at Ember Innovations in that we are part of a group of companies. So Ember is an NGO across New Zealand that does incredible work in a few different spaces. But there are three companies. We have Ember Housing and there's Housing and Respite Services in mental health and addiction space and employment. They also do intellectual disability so they've we've got those clients and those skill set in other company ember services they have kind of traditional and non-traditional mental health services cultural kopapa maori services peer support services those sorts of things 
And so whilst they're working within the system, we can work, work and play the outside the system but also have this amazing tapped-in knowledge of what it's like for staff kaimahi, what it's like for tangata or people with lived experience that use those services. So when we have innovators come to us and say, hey, we've got this great idea, we can ask our staff or we can ask our clients, would you like to test this out and tell us whether you think it works? Is New Zealand similar to Australia in this respect of – there are so many well-meaning foundations, organisations that start as a result of their own experience or a loved one that has experienced a mental ill health challenge. And so then as a result, they want to go out there and be the change and want to do it. They don't have the resources that a lot of the bigger organisations have, but they're actually well ingrained in the community and doing some really great things locally. Mm. It can be so busy with a lot of different organisations doing some amazing things where if you perhaps looked at it in an elevated sense, there could be the opportunity just to, you know, get some sort of a collaboration with a lot of them together to help if they're, if they're sort of they're bringing their own experience, but the outcome they're all gunning for is very, very, very similar. Is there that opportunity to try and, and do that and, and get more of a cohesive approach to these smaller organisations that are being created in the communities? Yeah, so what we identified in our research of, you know, who's innovating is that there's there's a few different personas, but one of them you've already mentioned is those people with lived or familial family experience of, of recovery or, you know, a system that didn't suit them and so they've come up with a solution or they've become an advocate themselves. There's, you know, clinicians that have decided they don't want to work within the system, they've found a, a gap and they're going to create a solution themselves. There's communities, there's indigenous, and there's arts-based practices. They all kind of right. kind of work in what we call these innovation spheres, and they're often not connected to each other. So you're right. I think you know there's something like three thousand mental health charities in the North Island of New Zealand alone, right? and you know we're tiny compared to Australia. I think yeah. New Zealand, the whole of New Zealand, fits into South Australia nine times. That's how small it is to have three thousand. Population-wise? Yeah, population-wise. Oh, so there's wow. only 5 million in the whole country. So to have that many charities, of course people are going, I want to raise money for mental health. Who do I go to? Of course, they, you know, they go to the loudest voices. Yeah. And the loudest voices, some of them do amazing work, but some of the smallest voices do incredible work, but they don't have the money or resources to promote themselves. So we would love to be that conduit. We would love people to come to us and go, hey, look, this is what we'd like to fund or this is what we're really interested in. Who out there is doing that work? So that – and the beautiful thing is that because we're not asking people to, to give us money, we can be really honest and go, hey, these guys over here are doing some great stuff in the AI technology space. If that's something you're interested in, do that. These, these people are doing some fantastic community Indigenous suicide prevention work. Go and look at that and promote that and raise money for that. So it's a great kind of brokerage yeah. thing that we can do. What Being at the forefront of this opportunity to link people together and create something truly amazing in the mental health sector, what, what is exciting you most about the future with where things are heading? Oh, that now that this is a like I'm going to get really burned passion about this, but, okay. and it's something that I've only just discovered. So the potential of this is is huge. But this Web three environment that is soon to be upon us, and you haven't heard of it yet, you soon will, has such enormous positive and negative, but mostly positive repercussions. But how 
about how we could design a system for the future. Now, if you think of, you know, if you don't know what Web3 is, Web2 is what we have now. So basically it's it's the internet, you Google search stuff, you go on, you know, your social media things. It, they own your data. You don't own data. They do. Web3 puts the power of data in the, the consumer's hands. So you will hold all your data and you will choose who gets to have that data. Now you can see kind of in a consumer world the applications for that, but in a mental health world it means if I'm holding my data, one, I don't have to repeat my story every time I go to a health provider. Two, I can choose what notes you record and and correct them and and decide who I want to to pass on my health data to. Three, you know, one of the other amazing things about things like blockchain technology is it gives us the power to be able to be really transparent about funding decisions. So we could see, and anyone could apply for funding for things that are going to meet these outcomes and the entire community can vote on what they think is going to... And because the process is transparent, you can actually see the full funding proposal. Now, that stuff excites me because it's about distributed power. It's no longer kind of the hierarchies we have. And I think that's upon us. I think if we had this podcast in five years' time, we'll be able to talk about some of the applications that have already happened. But now we're kind of just, that's an emerging field. Web3, so it's like, so at the moment, instead of people having, let's say, your email address or your your history of your browsing history or your purchase history, you're saying all that is back with you and you then get to take permissions off people yeah. and hold that and give them the key if they need, if you yeah. feel like you want them to have that access. Right. Our personal data is the most profitable commodity right now in the world. Yeah. Once we put that back into our own hands, you can choose to sell it if you want, but it belongs to you. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it incredible? And I mean, I've had an experience this week where someone hacked into my account and because of what they posted, I've now been blocked from Facebook. Now, I'm not that tied to, you know, being on Facebook, although I need to for work. What I am tied to is that knowledge that, oh God, you know, I, I, I don't have access to any of that data anymore. Any of the stories I posted, any of the photos I have, that yeah. belongs to Facebook. It does not belong to me. So Web3 means that I can I can gift it to Facebook to use, but actually it belongs to me to and I can take it back. And if I was hacked, then actually that data still stays with me and belongs with me, not to the companies that I've gifted it to. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Exciting, it, at yeah. the moment it's theirs. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I find that super exciting and it's a world that, you know, before I entered this job in March, because previous to this role I worked seven years as the CEO of a consumer organisation across New Zealand. But previous to that, I, th- this was not something I'd ever heard of. This is new language that I've, that I've just recently discovered, that there are communities that are self-funding initiatives based on the values of that through cryptocurrency. You know, like this is blowing my mind, the applications that this could have in health yeah. that no one is kind of contemplating because people who work walk in these worlds usually walk in, you know, the tech worlds or yeah. startup worlds and there's not a lot of them that cross cross boundaries but we've got an incredible board on innovations that come from that world and with our mental health knowledge and their knowledge of these technologies and the startup and eco, ecosystem, I think we're going to be able to do some awesome things. Wow, that does sound incredibly exciting. Yeah. That's, do you know anywhere in the world that's doing that at the moment? 
No, there's a lot of people talking about it though. So, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm just kind of starting in these conversations, but there are people that are looking at how how to use blockchain technology to do funding differently, how to use blockchain technology to secure data that that is transparent and belongs to you. Yeah, there, there's lots of people kind of exploring what the applications can be and I think the, the very first challenge that that world is trying to get over is the environmental impact of, of cryptocurrency and data mining and blockchain. You know, there's apparently enormous impact and so there are there are people, you know, working on fixing that before it becomes mainstream. Wow. Mm. Super exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so, you know, I said earlier that I'm not a Pollyanna, but I but I do love working slightly outside the system now where there are still a lot of people that have so much hope and so much optimism about transformation, true transformation, whereas, you know, working in the system for 20 years, there's a lot of people that have, you know, in the system themselves, not just our clients, that have lost that sense of optimism that things can change. And I, I fundamentally believe that every single person has a, a part to play in making even a small change towards mm. what we want to see for our grandchildren. That's incredible. It's been really insightful, Tammy, talking to you about this. And I can't wait to see where this goes and what stuff Amber are going to be involved in moving forward. But it certainly sounds like there's a lot happening. Tell our listeners if they want to get in touch or find out more, where, where can they go? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can look me up, Tammy yep. Allen, T-A-I-M-I-A-W-L-A-N on LinkedIn. Also, just go to emberinnovations.nz and get in touch with everything that we're doing. Join our newsletter. If you're an innovator yourself, on LinkedIn we have an innovators network so you can find out what other people are doing in this space and then be part of that yourself. But, yeah, just get in touch and, and, and watch what's happening. We'll, we'll let people know the future. Can't wait to see what comes of it. Tammy Allen, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate your time and thanks for sharing your story and the wonderful things you're up to. My pleasure, Sam. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.